Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to welcome you and thank you for listening to my podcast. Our special guest this episode is author, poet, and educator, Quincy True. He is an amazing person, as you will hear later on during the episode. It's been a really busy week this past one, what with President Joe Biden's first press conference and yet another congressional hearing at which big tech giants were grilled by members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. As for the press conference from President Joe Biden, I find it interesting, uh, first of all, that he really, I believe, comported himself quite well, and the media, not so much. Now, the big news that came out of this press conference was Biden's pledge to administer 200 million COVID-19 vaccinations by the end of his first 100 days. That is double his original goal, and it truly is setting a high, high bar. And we're in a middle, we're in the middle, that is, of a situation where the numbers of COVID cases are going up at the same time that many states across America are loosening, or in some cases, getting rid of restrictions, regulations, and things that have been put in place to try and keep people safe. So with that situation in mind, President Biden's decision and goal and pledge to say, you know what, we're going to have 200 million of these vaccinations by the first 100 days I'm in office, it takes on an extraordinary significance. In point of fact, Joe Biden, as far as I'm concerned, really has not put a foot wrong since he's become president. Now, I must say, if you go back to 2019, maybe even early 2020, I would not have expected much from Joe Biden, to be honest with you. I was a big fan of Bernie Sanders, although uh, the fact of the matter is, Every candidate, to some extent, one way or another, is flawed. But I did like a lot of what Bernie Sanders had to say. And at first, I didn't think that Joe Biden had a chance of procuring the Democratic nomination. I was proved wrong. South Carolina turned out to be the linchpin. The work of Congressman Jim Clyburn down there turned the tide for Joe Biden. And I think that his actions, and I called on him in a previous episode of this podcast, to take a stimulus bill and coronavirus as his two biggest priorities. And that's exactly what the man has done. I have to salute him for that because I wasn't sure that was going to happen. He's also talking, and we'll talk about this further down in the episode, he's also talking about infrastructure, something that has inarguably been neglected over a long, long period of time by administrations, both Democratic and Republican. Okay, I mean, I could blame it all on the Republicans, but that would be, I don't know, uh, uh, just a bit wrong. Democrats have not exactly seen to infrastructure. I know Barack Obama tried. He didn't get as far as I thought he should have gotten in revitalizing the nation's roads, rails, etc. And there was no truer example of this than the so-called gateway tunnel between New Jersey and New York, uh, a tunnel that is now somewhere on the order of 100 years old. And the governor of New Jersey at the time, Chris Christie, said, no, 
We can't do that. It's going to cost too much money. And there are reasons why in a global situation, in a global construct, those kinds of infrastructure decisions are going to be seen in history as the legacy of fools as far as people in this country are concerned. And again, we'll get to some of the other places where infrastructure is playing a role further down the road. Now, the media at this press conference, in my judgment, did not cover themselves in glory. They asked about immigration a bunch of times, and certainly it's a topic that needed to be addressed. It's a topic that needed to be discussed. And Joe Biden, I don't think, has yet found a way to balance human compassion with a surge of migration at the border. And it is, at, the, at this point, his Achilles heel because the right wing is going after him tooth and nail about this. So, yeah, I expected it to be uh, a, a topic of conversation at this press conference, but people asked it a bunch of times. And in some cases, they echoed the right wing talking point that the surge at the border was because Joe Biden was seen as a nice guy. That is complete and utter nonsense. You don't have to be Donald Trump uh, or, for that matter, on the uh, polar opposite, a nice guy who's inviting everybody into the country. Biden is not doing that. Biden is trying to undo four years of complete, I would say, uh, oppressive conditions at the border where children were separated from their parents. Uh, it, it was it was just a hot mess. Now, what's interesting about the media and how they questioned him uh, was, okay, so you don't ask him about things like, for example, uh, anti-Asian violence, climate change, or even getting deep on the pandemic. They did, however, ask him about whether or not he'll run again in 2024. That's a real interesting question for a guy who has yet to be in office for 90 days. 90 days. And to me, that is just kind of like a useless question at this point in time. But of course, I'm not part of the White House press corps. Now, one of the things that happens when the media gets criticized, is that they hit back. They hit back, certainly uh, in terms of some of the allegations that were made, for example, in the United Kingdom uh, about Harry and Meghan and by Harry and Meghan, and the media swung back hard. And American media is the same way. You call them out on something, they call you out double. And it's because the media likes to protect itself, just like politicians like to protect themselves. So at this point, the media, they need to do better, all right? Um, maybe if you want to make any excuse at all for the press, it's that most of them have spent the last four years covering foolishness from the previous president and his minions. But on to the next big deal of the week. Now, some of you may know this, some of you may not. But I am not the biggest fan of social media or the people who make stupid money from it. A good deal of this is because a lot of this stuff, except for keeping up with friends, is worthless to me. 
I don't tweet. I don't use it as some weapon. Um, I go on Facebook largely to keep track of folks I haven't seen or talked to in a long time. And you'd be surprised. I was surprised and shocked, in fact, at who among my friends knew about other of my friends unbeknownst to me. That, that really did my heart good. And the people I'm talking about know who I'm talking about. Now, I believe that a lot of social media is a rabbit hole of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, and nonsensical back and forth about absolutely nothing. Now, again, I know some people can't live without social media. Uh, some people think social media is, uh, you know, where their bread is buttered. Fine. That's up to you. I don't have all that much use for it. And every time I hear about somebody losing a job or somebody doing this or that or the other because of social media or retweeting something or liking a tweet, I say to myself, God, who are these people? And don't they have lives? But hey, you know what? That's just me. I do find it interesting, though that when the titans of tech are called before Congress to explain themselves, you get some really interesting back and forth, or in some cases, just back. So it was this past week as the CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, and Google faced the congressional music on a host of issues. Unfortunately, House Energy and Commerce Committee members spent a good deal of time trying to get Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, and Sundar Pichai, boss of Google, to answer yes or no questions on issues that, with one exception, these three folks had no intention of answering yes or no. It was the first time this trio had gone before Congress since the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Congressman Mike Doyle, top Democrat on the committee, asked each one if their companies were partly responsible for the insurrection. He asked it in a yes or no format. And of course, that allowed Zuckerberg and Pichai to duck and dodge. Only Dorsey answered affirmative and answered yes to a yes or no question. As is their habit, Republicans on the committee accused the companies of censoring conservative voices. I could get into an entire separate episode about that. Interestingly, both sides of the aisle asked sharp questions about protecting children and teens from addiction to social media. To me, it's kind of like the same thing they used to say about tobacco. You know, you get kids interested in it, eventually you get kids to try it, and eventually you get kids hooked on it. This, of course, is in the wake of both Facebook and Google creating platforms specifically aimed at children. Lawmakers also, as they have in the past, brought up Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. For those of you who don't know, Section 230 shields big tech from lawsuits stemming from the content users put on their sites. Both Republicans and Democrats on the committee want to see the section changed, but they differ, as you might expect, on exactly how. Zuckerberg was asked why Facebook doesn't treat climate change misinformation the same as COVID misinformation. His answer was that COVID misinformation has the potential to cause imminent physical harm while climate change lies don't. Somebody better tell Greta Thunberg about that one. It's not really a satisfactory answer, at least in my judgment. Not at all. 
As for policing, I can only talk about Facebook, again, because I don't use Twitter, and I only use Google if I'm doing research. I know lots of people who have been put in what they call Facebook jail. Never been clear about what line they cross, but I do know that both left and right-wing friends of mine, and yes, I do have right-wing friends, have been sentenced to various periods in Facebook jail. They do all have strong opinions, but none that I know of could be accused of deliberately spreading false information. The long and the short of it is this. Congress wants very badly to regulate social media. Democrats want stronger curbs on lies, while Republicans want less moderation in the name of free speech. If I was able to put my two cents in, I'd argue against the use of algorithms in decisions about what constitutes unacceptable speech or what constitutes lying. Generally speaking, I just don't trust them against human intelligence. This wasn't the first time those titans of tech have appeared before a congressional committee. It will not be the last. No matter lawmakers, no matter what they choose to do, that is, they will continue to rake in money as long as people have a desire to express themselves through social media. And it looks like even though some people, some prominent people have dropped off social media, it looks like social media is here to stay, and some of the problems attendant with it are also here to stay. Up next, the U.S. and China. Can the Biden administration get the Chinese government to stop human rights violations? And later on, my conversation with award-winning poet, writer, and author, Quincy True. By the way, what's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Back shortly, this is The Intersection. the intersection. Still to come, my conversation with award-winning poet and writer Quincy Troop. But first, the dueling sanctions between the United States, the UK, against China, and vice versa. At issue is the Chinese government's treatment of the Uyghur Muslim population in Xinjiang region of the country. The West has taken China to task for creating internment camps, forced relocation and sterilization of Uyghur women. The Chinese government vehemently denies there is any oppression going on at all. In addition, the UK has a beef with the Chinese over their crackdown on dissent in Hong Kong, which has been going on for a while now. This has been happening below the radar in the US, where some people think the issue is whether or not to call COVID-19 the Chinese virus or Kung flu. Like that matters at this point. We should be under no illusion China has a game plan, and unless the West has much more serious sanctions in mind, they won't be deterred. China wants to be the preeminent economy on the planet. To do that, of course, they must upend the United States. They have no choice. Their plan for economic superiority has been in place since 2013. It's called the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. Most Americans don't know a great deal about BRI. Put simply, 
It's a multi-trillion dollar effort by China to fund infrastructure projects around the world, from Africa to Europe to Latin America. Thus far, the results of this initiative have been mixed. If you look at it in Western terms, return on investment has not been promising. Yet the sheer scope of BRI defies looking at this simply in terms of finance. The Chinese want to extend their influence around the world, helping poor and developing nations build railroads, ports, and new trade routes has the potential to redraw the global map and not in favor of the West. Keep in mind, the Chinese just made a trade agreement with Iran, and of course that would put a major Western antagonist firmly in alliance with the Chinese. And, and they get along well now, but a major trade deal would take it even further. Against that backdrop, Western sanctions of individuals in China mean little or nothing. In fact, it does give Beijing the opportunity to look tough by responding in kind, which is exactly what they did. And behind all this is the plight of the Uyghurs. They certainly appear to be the definition of an oppressed minority. The question is whether anything the West can do to change their situation, or is it too late? On its face, the answer might be not much. The Chinese have loudly and publicly denied any wrongdoing when it comes to the treatment of Uyghurs. That isn't likely to change sanctions notwithstanding. So how is the West to deal with what some see as Chinese expansionism and oppression? Keep in mind, they were willing to blow up a chance at a trade deal with Europe over the issue of sanctions. Now, let's make no mistake about this. China should not get a pass on the treatment of Uyghurs. Human rights abuses all over the planet demand to be taken seriously no matter where they take place. And see, what ends up happening in too many cases is that some of the West points at Uyghurs and then they start talking, the Chinese talk about some of the other places in the world where the West is supporting governments that are at best dictatorial and supporting oppression in some cases. The real question here is how to push the right buttons to get the Chinese government to change their policy. President Biden is talking about trying to create a Western version of the Belt and Road Initiative. It may well be too little, too late, but maybe it's worth a try. At least it recognizes Beijing's endgame better than cliches and stupid jingoistic phrases like Kung Flu. When we come back, part one of my conversation with poet, author, and educator, Quincy True. It's Mark Riley with the intersection of politics and culture. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Intersection. Quincy Troop is an iconic figure in the world of American literature. He's won the American Book Award twice, once for his volume of poetry, Snakeback Solos, and for his book, Miles, the Autobiography. And he's been a personal hero of mine for a very, very long time. Here's part one of my conversation with this fascinating literary giant. It's a true honor to have as my very special guest at this time, 
multi-award winning educator, author, activist, the whole nine yards, and poet. I must, must not forget that, Mr. Quincy True. How you doing, sir? Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you, Mark. All right. Good to see you. I'm doing all right. Doing all right. I, I want to ask you right off the top, because it's something that's always fascinated me. When did you realize that writing would be your life? I had to go back a little bit, uh, just a little bit. Uh, I always read books. I always read books uh, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, my mother was a reader. And uh, I was always reading. She always introduced me to books. And I always loved to read. Uh, I remember re reading uh, as I was growing up, Richard Wright. And I had Richard Wright to read and all of that. And, um, and growing up in St. Louis, it was, it was it, and I always went to the library and read books. And it, it was something that transported me from St. Louis, which I, I, I never really liked St. Louis. I just never really liked it uh, because I had grown up between St. Louis and Mexico, St. Louis and Puerto Rico, St. Louis and Cuba because my father was a baseball player. And so I always was, you know, out, in and out of St. Louis. And so I, you know, I, I have to say all this because, and I just didn't like St. Louis. I don't, I don't know why, <laughs> uh, but um, I don't know why I just didn't like it because it was so violent and it, and it made me, it made me uh, become at one time very violent because it was for protection. You know, you, you, you know what I'm saying? It was for Absolutely. protection because, uh, because people were just stupid, you know, and I, and I was not willing to die just because they were stupid, you know? Uh, so I had, I had to, I, I, so I learned how to box and, and all of that, you know, and I was an athlete growing up, a basketball player ba and a baseball player, but a better basketball player and, mm. and a really good, player. my father thought, my father was a great baseball player and he thought I could make the major leagues as a pitcher because he played for the Cleveland Buckeyes and he was the manager. He was a big star and I just didn't like baseball. So. And this I'm gonna make this not a long story, but this is how it all started, and uh, and I always wanted to leave St. Louis. I always wanted to leave St. Louis, so I went away to college and um, Grambling College. Got into trouble down there because you know, uh, all, with all standing standing dormitory with all the football players, you know, and I was the basketball players we all, and so I I got in fights down there. You know, I got in fights down there with those people from Dallas and Houston and New Orleans, and, you know, just stupid stuff, you know? And finally I got kicked out once for beating up a guy so bad, you know? And <laughs> so they put me out, but they, but I was such a good basketball player, they let, let me come back. So I came back and um, and the same thing happened again. You know, the really? same twice. Yeah, I got kicked out twice <laughs> yeah, for beating up people. And, you know, it's not something I'm proud of, but I'm right, reason is fresh, I'm writing my memoir now, so I'm, it's all in there. And so, you know, that's what it was. So when I came back to St. Louis, my mother said, look, <laughs> you're getting too, you're too crazy. So you, you're going to have to leave, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to have. And I moved to California because that's where my father was. He was in Los Angeles and I moved to Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, things started to open up for me, even though my father kicked me out for, for, for you know, getting high and stuff, you know. <laughs> Seems like he was always getting kicked out of places, huh? Out. So I, you know, I, and, and, um, and so I went to Watts, I moved to Watts, 
in, Los, uh, in Southeast Los Angeles because I had met some people who were writers. And uh, I was st really starting to write then. I was really starting to write then, but I wasn't take, taking it seriously. Uh, so I went back to school, uh, went back to school to say journalism. I figured I couldn't make doing money as a poet. And uh, so I went back to study journalism so I could write for newspapers. That was my plan to write for newspapers so I could write poetry on the side. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I never knew it was going to be take over my life. And uh, so that's what I that's what I did. I, I went back to L.A. and um, and a matter of fact, I want to interject this in here now. Some of my really best friends are from L.A., you know, uh, uh, poets, uh, K. Curtis Lyle, a brother named Ojinki, uh, a whole bunch of guys that I, 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 I bonded with out there. And um, living in Los Angeles, um, you know, I started writing for for Los Angeles Free Press, uh, for for uh, Los Angeles Free Press, uh, for the LA Times as a stringer, you know, uh, and I started editing uh, magazines and stuff like that. And so that's how I got sideways into writing and uh, literature. And at, at a certain point, uh, they asked me to teach a class at UCLA. Uh, and, and the extension class. And I, I taught writing out there. I went out, by this time I was starting to get a reputation as a poet. And so I went out there and started teaching writing. And I realized that I really, really, really loved teaching. I really loved it. And, uh, and by that time uh, I, I came East to do a tour and I came to Ohio, went to Ohio University to do this big reading with these uh, writers. And um, they asked me to come there. They liked me so much. They asked me to come there and teach uh, at Ohio in Athens, Ohio. So I went back to LA and in the fall, I went to Athens, Ohio uh, to teach at Ohio University. And I was, by this time I was with this woman I was with a really lovely woman, uh, not my wife now, but Karen Kimbrough, beautiful woman, you know, um, uh, she's married now too, but uh, she, she went back there with me. And so we lived there and, uh, I, and I started to, you know, really write and started, started to come to New York and go to Cleveland and Detroit and all of those places, go to in St. Louis and Memphis. And, but I, I decided when I went to New York, I said, wow, I got to live here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I have to live in New York City. I mean, I just got to live here. And I didn't know how that was gonna happen. So make a long story short, I, I, a, a, a guy from Ghana, his name was Francis Bachway, Dr. Francis Bachway. Uh, uh, he was, a, uh, he had ran a program at the College of Staten Island. And so he asked me, would I come to New York to teach at the College of Staten Island? And I said, really? He said, yeah. And so I came, I came to New York, got an apartment here, came to New York, uh, uh, um, Karen and myself, and uh, you know, came to New York and started, got an apartment at Central Park West, 382 Central Park West, between I was on 97th Street between uh, um, Central Park and Columbus. Columbus, yes, Park West Village, right? Park West Village. And I lived on the 16th floor, had a little balcony, a one bedroom apartment, and I just, I thought I was in heaven, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I got a job, you know, I'm making some money and, uh, you know, and, and, and that's, that's where it was. And this, you know, one thing led to another and eventually uh, I moved to 
382, I mean, that was 382 Central Parkway. And then I moved on, on Western Avenue and 101st Street. And uh, I lived there for a while. And Karen and I broke up, you know. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, she's a beautiful woman, nice woman, but I just, I, I, by this time I had started to go out with other women, but then I met Margaret, my wife. We've been together 40 years now. And it was the love of my life, you know, I met her and, uh, and uh, you know, she was working at the New York Times. And uh, so we just, we just hit it, you know, yeah, she yeah. did. Has your approach to poetry changed mm -hmm. from your early incarnations to now? Cause I know you still write. And I've always been fascinated about how poets approach their work, you know, cause I, I, if it was me, it'd be, there was a young man from Nantucket. There's gotta be a process involved. What was your process? My process was that, that at first I was, I, I was writing fiction, prose. And then I discovered poetry. I, I, I fell in love with Pablo Neruda. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with Pablo Neruda and Garcia Lorca. Langston Hughes had already started reading, but those two people, uh, uh, Pablo Neruda was really more, more so than Larker, but Pablo Neruda just took me out. He, he and, and Latin American poetry, strange as, uh, I love, I love Baraka and I love uh, American poets, but I really just, the affinity I had was for the Latin American poets, uh, because the way they use language and the way they use imagery and metaphor and, uh, you know, they just took me out of my whole head, you know, and oh, yeah. transformed they just transported me. So I wanted, I wanted my poems to transport people like that. You know, rather than talking about, well, I was writing poems like "Burn It Down," "Burn the Burn the City Down" for Crazy Horse Geronimo, Malcolm King X. You know what I mean? Political poems because I was yeah. involved in that kind of stuff with with the Panthers. Bunchy Carter was a good friend of mine who was, uh, you know, uh, one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party. But he was also a poet, and Barack and I had gotten to be good friends. But as much as I liked their work. I still loved Pablo Neruda's work more, even though he was, he was political too. So that's how I started to really get deep into the poet, into the poetry, you know, really started to get deep into the poetry. Uh, like I said before, I had lived in France. I had lived in France, played basketball in France. And I thought at one time I was gonna be a basketball, pro basketball player because I used to score like 30, 35 points a game. You know, I, was, I thought I was going to be a pro, and but I wrecked my knee, and that was the end of that, you know? <laughs> Believe me, I understand. But, you know, I, and I want to, a, a little further down the road, talk to you a bit about the poem you wrote for Magic, because that, okay. and I told you this yesterday, that yeah. poem absolutely transformed me in terms of how I saw his work. But before we get to that, I want to talk about uh, perhaps the, the, the stuff that people know you best from, and those are the two pieces you did on Miles Davis. Well, Miles, uh, you know, my, my, my uh, cousin in St. Louis uh, had a big, he was a big band leader. He was my, my mother's cousin, uh, Eddie Randall. Okay. Uh, Eddie Randall was one of the best musicians in the United States, but he would never leave St. Louis because he, he was an undertaker. <laughs> <laughs> on this big film home and because you know so many crazy black people they're killing each other he made a fortune <laughs> just burying black people having funerals and things but he was a great trumpet player and uh, had a band and all that so he would play around town and so I'd go to his house and and uh, he was telling me he asked for I first heard about Miles Davis 
he said, yeah, you gotta, you gotta listen to this. Miles Davis is the man. I didn't know who Miles Davis was. And so I started listening to him and uh, really loved his music, really loved his music. So when he came to town, my cousin, uh, Marvin, and I, Marvin, I was a little young. I was about, by this time I'm 17, uh, 18. And, uh, but I wasn't, you know, I couldn't go to bars and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm coming back a little bit. And so he took, I said, man, I got to hear Miles Davis. I got to, I got to meet Miles Davis. I got to meet Miles Davis. So Marvin said, well, Miles Davis don't want to meet you, man. <laughs> you know, I thought, yeah, I'm an all-state basketball player. I know he wants to meet me. You know what I mean? That's what I was, <laughs> my little head, you know? And so we went to see Miles Davis and Miles Davis was so great. He was so great at Peacock Alley. And uh, and what happened was is what made me really besides his playing, I remember he was at the bar with Coltrane. He was at the bar with Coltrane. He was he was up there smoking a cigarette. I never smoked or did anything like that. And uh, but he was smoking him train. They were there. I didn't know who I I, I had just heard Coltrane, and so I heard the the crowd was it was packed. And uh, there was this little arc around of, of space around where Miles was at the bar. You know, I heard this something in the back someplace said, oh, darling, there's Miles Davis at the bar. Let's go say hello, say hello. And so everybody was turned around because I knew it was a white guy, you know, the way he talked. And so we, most of the people were black. So he, excuse me, excuse me. So he, he goes up to Miles Davis at the bar and said, and stuck his hand out and said, Miles, my name is, and I, I used the language Miles said, said Miles said, you motherfucker, you motherfucker, get the out of my face, you drive ass mother, and take that with you. I had never heard a black person talk to a white person like that. Like that, yeah. And I said to myself, wow, that is cold blooded. You know what I mean? I got to know this guy, you know? And uh, I told him that story later on. So anyway, I never got to meet him that night, never got to meet him that night. So when I came to New York, jumped forward some, came to New York, uh, I found out that he lived, he lived, I lived on the Upper West Side and he lived on the Upper West Side. He used to go into McHale's and I used to go into McHale's, but I was too scared to go up to him after that incident with that, with that. <laughs> and so I started writing for the free press and uh, uh, the spin and all the magazines, the Rolling Stone. And so when Rudy Langlace, who now is, is and I'm gonna jump forward a little bit, Rudy Langlace is, was the editor first at the Village Voice, and he was my editor at the Village Voice. And he was also, he had moved over to Spin Magazine uh, to, to be the senior editor there. And so he asked me one day, what is your, when we moved over there, what, what are your choices? Who do you want? What's your, give me, give me your first five pieces you want to write. First thing I said, I want to write Miles Davis. I want to write about Miles Davis. He said, okay. okay. And they called up and got, and the woman, uh, uh, one of my, I see, I got very fortunate in a lot of ways. One of my ex students from the College of Staten Island, uh, she was working with Miles, you know? Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And I didn't know that. So when they called up, he said, oh, and, and so when Rudy called up to make the arrangement, she said, oh, uh, Quincy was my, was my literature professor, you know? And so she set it up mm. and he was living on Fifth Avenue. He was living on Fifth Avenue, 79th and Fifth Avenue. And uh, I set it up 
And I go down there. I was so happy. I drove, had a little, I had a little sob at that time. Mm. I drove my sob down there, parked it on Fifth Avenue, went up to the 14th floor, you know, the 14th floor, and his valet let me in. And so I go in, and he's in there painting. Right? He's painting at the table, drawing. So I'm so, but you know, by this time, like I said, I had hurt my knee playing basketball, and I, I'm standing up behind him. And I'm getting pissed off because my leg is starting to hurt because he he's he won't pay me no attention, right? <laughs> so finally, I'm just moving from land to side to side, and he's turning around and saying, sit down, sit down. And I said, oh, sit over there. So I go around the table and sit down. By this time, I was my hair was starting to dread. So he looked at me and says, he looked at me, and he says, man, you're about a funny-looking mother I said, where you from? I said, St. Louis. He said, St. Louis, huh? I know. And I said, not only that, uh, Eddie Randall was my cousin. First band you played in. Eddie Randall was your cousin? I said, yeah. So we hit it just like that. He said, then he looked at me again. He said, just, just sit there, ask me a question. <laughs> and, <laughs> Don't just sit there, ask me a question. So I, I asked him a question and I started talking to him. And we were supposed to have, I was supposed to have an hour and a half with him. Two hours later, his, uh, my, the, the, the woman who was my student comes up and said, Miles, Miles, it's been two hours. And, uh, you know, you still talking to each other, you know? He said, yeah. He said, well, you know, you said an hour and a half. He said, oh, you ain't my mama or nothing, are you? <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm having fun with this mother. You know, so, so and, and that's the way it was. I mean, it was it was amazing. And we went out and got something to eat. We went out and got something to eat. I came back up, and he says, "You need anything else? Call me up and come back down." So the, I went home, looked at my stuff. I saw that I had some gaps. Next two days later, I call him up. He said, "Come on down." I went on down, and that was how I met him. And it was just like that. We just hit it. We just hit it off. We just hit it really, it's strange how we hit it like that. And you know, people used to say to me, you know, Miles, man, he don't talk to nobody, man. I don't know what, how'd you do that? I said, I really don't know. I really don't know, except that I was from St. Louis and my cousin was Eddie Randall, you know? Yeah, yeah. It must have been uh, a little difficult at the very beginning until he warmed up to you. But I wanted to ask you about something I had heard about him over and over again, because I, I talked to Herbie Hancock and Ron Carter and people like that. And they all said as irascible as he may have been talking to people, as a band leader, he was extraordinarily generous. Is that what you found in him? Yeah, I found that he was a very generous person. He was just absolute. Not only that, he was a beautiful person. I mean, he kept everybody away from him. And that, that attitude he had that he showed everybody, uh, the public, uh, you know, he just kept people off of him with that attitude, you know, mm. uh, as a person, uh, he was a very lovely person. I thought he was a very, you know, I find him to be generous. You know, I found him to be generous. I remember I, when I said to him, uh, 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 he was going to Europe and, and, uh, and, uh, and he told his manager and, uh, he told his manager, I said, yeah, I want to go, you know, go to Europe and maybe I can do something. He said, well, we'll get you a ticket. Mm. And so, so Peter Shukat, who's dead now, who's his manager, he called up Peter right then and said, get Quincy a ticket to France. <laughs> get a round trip 
first class ticket, motherfucker. So I got the ticket. I went over to France, you know, and it was like that. But that's the way he was. He was, he was a very, very, uh, like he loved my wife right from the jump, you know. Mm. He did, you know. It was like he just, he was that kind of guy, you know. You know, I, I always wondered um, because you know uh, my older brother was a Miles fanatic as a young man. And I grew up listening to him in my brother's house. And I was always fascinated by how his music evolved over time. Uh, I fell in love, for example, with all blues and, and, and that material. And then as he, uh, uh, I guess, evolved, um, I heard him play different kinds of things. And I was always fascinated by the fact that he was unafraid to sit on his laurels, unafraid to just play the same stuff over and over again. He kept moving in a particular direction, which was his direction. How did he explain that to you? Well, he, uh, he Miles Davis was, he reminded me, and I told him this one day as we got to be better, good friends. I told him, I said, you know, you remind me of Picasso, you know, as, as Picasso as a painter. Picasso kept changing, you know, he kept changing, his work kept changing. Or Pablo Neruda, who he didn't know who he was. Said, <laughs> I, know who. I said, Pablo Neruda. And I said, he was a poet, he was a poet, you know, uh, and uh, he kept changing, you know, he kept changing as a poet. And um, I said, I love that about your work, that you keep changing, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, well, then you, you should be my publicist. You know, they want to always be playing kind of blue and, you know, that and, and you know, the, the music I used to play. And he said, you know, that's not where I'm at. You know, I'm, 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 I'm always moving ahead. I'm trying to find out what's, what's happening in the new stuff. I remember when I, you know, I turned him on the Kassav, mm -hmm. uh, which is that group from uh, Martinique and Guadeloupe and some of them for France, from France. And they played Zouk. Yeah. And, and I turned him on. I said, man, I got, I got, I got something for you, man. He said, what? I said, Kassav. So he said, Kassav, who is that? So I bought him, all, bought him all these records. I took them down there and gave them to him. You know, mm -hmm. he played those records. Said, he called me up and said, man, man, this group is a monster. Do you know them? I said, <laughs> I know. I go to Guadalupe all the time. I go to Guadalupe. I say, you want to go to Guadalupe? Yeah. I say, yeah, I want to go. He said, say, you can get me down there? I said, yeah, I can get you down there. I'll get you down there. It'd be love to have you in Guadalupe and Martinique. And so, because by that time, I was going back and forth to Guadalupe. So I used to go to Haiti. I used to go to Haiti and my wife and I used to go to Haiti. And uh, then we found Guadalupe because we had some Guadalupean friends. And then we would go to Guadalupe. And so we had a house in Haiti. And then we had a house in Guadalupe, a place in Guadalupe. And so, uh, so I knew a lot of the people down there, musicians and, and a lot of the artists. So I got him, in, I got him a, a gig down in Guadalupe. And he went down there and played seven nights, man. Really? They, oh, yeah. Yeah. They loved him. Oh, God. They loved him, man. They just, man, they were so, yeah. I, I, my, my wife and I could do in, they, we could get anything in Guadalupe. After we, <laughs> Davis down there for seven nights. They were like, "Whoa, man!" And some of them were hanging out with him. You know, the musicians. They, uh, it was great. It was great. He was fabulous. You know, so he picked up that Zook music too, and he heard that man. He was yeah. He said, "Wow, this is something, man!" And he met all those guys. I introduced them to him, and uh, at the Kassab, that group. And so you know, 
uh, I always, I, I, in a lot of ways, he and I are a lot alike. You know, I, I, I like moving ahead and taking chance, chances mm -hmm. and, risk, and risk in my own writing. And, uh, and the same thing with him, with the music. The second part of my interview with Quincy True will be heard in a future episode. Thank you so much for listening. The executive producer of The Interception is Miss Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.